Father, I want to thank you for the moms in this place, those who are joining us online. Father, those mothers who are represented by their children in this room, like me, as a mom who's a thousand miles away, but very near to my own heart. Lord, we thank you for our moms. God, we thank you for how you've shaped our lives. You've made us the people that we are through the influence of these women, and we pray blessing over them. Her children will rise up and call her blessed. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is fading. But a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. We thank you for our moms, God. And I pray for those whose hearts are heavy today, Lord. For those who are celebrating Mother's Day for the first, maybe the second or maybe the, the 20th time without mom around the table and it's still hard. I pray you'd meet them with grace. Let them know you're there, that you love them. And Father, we thank you for the promise of Christ that there's a great reunion day that's coming where we will be together forever with the Lord. And Lord, I pray for those ladies that are part of this fellowship who desire to be moms one day. Lord, would you give them grace in the waiting, sustain them with patience in the midst of their time of waiting on the season in which you'll work and the way only you can work. And Lord, I pray that you'd help them to have a a, a satisfaction, God, and their station of life today, knowing that it's no accident that they are where they are and who they are who they are because of your grace. And so for all the ladies that are present with us, all the children who celebrate their moms, Lord, we praise you for this Mother's Day and we ask your blessing on it. It's in Jesus' name. We make our prayer and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Well, listen, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter two. In honor of our mothers this Mother's Day, I'm gonna continue our study of the gospel of Mark verse by verse. You're welcome, moms, you're welcome. Hey, listen, before we dig into our next text, I just really wanna remind you of what's been going on in this section of Mark. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, What Mark has been doing in this gospel account of the life of Christ has been establishing the identity and authority of Jesus Christ. His identity is that he is God in the flesh, and as God, he's living with the authority of God. So those are two huge things that Mark is doing in these first couple chapters of the gospel of Mark. We see Jesus living as only God could live with authority over nature and disease and people and sin. We, we see him calling people to follow him, to literally quit their jobs and reorder their entire lives around Jesus because Jesus is worth it because Jesus is God in the flesh. He claims to have the authority to forgive people's sins as though all of everyone's sins are against him. And the only way he can make that claim is because he's God and all sins are against him. And so this section is highlighting the authority and identity of Jesus. But where we're really at in, a, in, a, in another smaller section here in Mark is we're at the end of five specific stories that Mark tells about Jesus. And these five stories in a very 
particular way not only highlight the authority of Jesus, they actually highlight the response of the religious leaders to the authority of Jesus. So five stories in a row, Jesus is showing his authority as God in the flesh, and five stories in a row, the religious leaders known as the scribes and the Pharisees are responding with increasing anger toward Jesus. As a matter of fact, at the end of our text this morning, as we look at these final two stories in that series of five, we're going to see that the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, finally get so angry at Jesus that they are determined to put him to death. So this is the the place where the die is cast, in a sense, that will lead to Calvary and the murder of Jesus the Christ. And so as we look at these last two stories, what we find is that Mark is tying the final two stories of this series of five around the Sabbath day, encounters that Jesus had with religious leaders on the Sabbath day. And these encounters cause the religious leaders to be so angry, they decide we have to get rid of this guy. We can't live with him anymore. So look at Mark chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 23, and we'll read through verse 6 of chapter 3. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are, your, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of God for us this morning. And as I said just a moment ago, these final two stories in the series of five we've been in, They show these two encounters that revolve around the Sabbath day. And it's this conflict that's growing between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it seems to center not only on his claim to be God, but on his claim to be God over the Sabbath day. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Jewish Sabbath, let me give you a very, very brief bit of background so you can understand a little bit of what's going on in our text. You see, God established 
the pattern for Sabbath when he created this universe. Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 says that after God created the entire universe in six days, verse 2 says this, on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, so you see right there that God established a pattern for humanity that he embedded into the fabric of creation. He rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he was giving us an example that he desired to be a rhythm for our life, a rhythm of work and of rest. And then when he comes to the Ten Commandments and gives his people Israel the Ten Commandments through Moses, their leader, he actually includes a Sabbath law in the Ten Commandments as the fourth commandment. This is Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Okay, so God commands the people of Israel to have a Sabbath rest on the seventh day of every week, which is Saturday. So God's the author and he's the authority over the Sabbath because God is the one who's instilled it not only into the fabric of the created order, but also into the law that he gave Israel. Here's what that means. Since God established Sabbath, he's the author and authority over it. It means that when Jesus tells the Pharisees that he is the Lord or the master of the Sabbath. He's clearly saying he has the authority of the one who gave the law of God. In other words, he has the authority of God himself. In other words, he's God in the flesh. And I would encourage you to file these stories away as you all are contemplating biblical evidence for the claims of Jesus toward deity. I know sometimes we're in conversations and people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, absolutely Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be God all over the place. And this is one of those claims where Jesus is holding the authority of God and the Pharisees are up in arms about it. They act like they're deeply offended over the honor of God because Jesus is claiming to have the authority of God. But there's something else that's actually going on under the surface here. There's something that's going on that you'll see in our text. It wasn't just the authority of God that was being challenged. It was actually the authority of the religious leaders that Jesus is challenging. Let me, let me show you what I mean. In verse 23 of Mark chapter 2, he says, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, so get the picture here. Jesus and his followers are just walking through a grain field. I know as a guy who grew up in Ohio that grain fields are pretty fun to walk through. You kind of brush your hands along the heads of grain. It's really easy as you're walking through to just snag a, a bit of grain there in your hand and kind of rub it together there. And the Pharisees see them doing that very action and they confront them and accuse Jesus of allowing his disciples to break the law. 
But all they did was pluck off a couple heads of grain. How could that be considered work that broke the Sabbath principle? Well, here's how. Throughout the years, the Pharisees created an exhaustive and exhausting list of rules for the Sabbath. Rules that they claimed would cause you to violate God's prohibition of work on the Sabbath. You want a couple examples? Good. Thanks for being responsive this morning. I'm (laughs) grateful for that. They said that tailors were not allowed to carry a needle on the Sabbath because a needle was their instrument of work, and that would constitute work if they carried a needle. They said that no one was allowed to carry anything that weighed more than a dried fig, or that was work. They said that if you tossed, and I love this one, if you tossed an object into the air and you caught it with the other hand, that constituted work. But if you threw it in the air and you caught it with the same hand, that wasn't work. I don't know about you, It's harder for me to do the one-hand deal than the two-hand. Jugglers were not allowed to practice on the Sabbath. They said only medical treatment that you could give someone was to keep them from dying on the Sabbath. But if you did any medical treatment that actually improved their condition, that constituted work. And on and on and on, the Pharisees' ideas of what was and wasn't work on the Sabbath were exhaustive, and they were exhausting. As a matter of fact, it was so extensive that for the people of Israel, the Sabbath day, in large part, became the worst day of their week. Because of the regulations of the Pharisees, you had to work really hard to rest on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees loved it. They loved the feeling that it gave them, the feeling of authority and superiority and control. They, they loved that, that feeling of self-righteousness where they were able to show how much better they were than everybody else because they could do what almost no one else could do. What they did is once a week they put on a show that centered on themselves Because they made up commands that were nearly impossible for everyone else to keep. But in their self-righteousness, a super self-motivated, self-righteous person could finally and ultimately keep their laws. And that's what they loved. They loved being able to show just how good and strong and righteous and holy they were. And then Jesus came along. And I love Jesus. Because he doesn't put up with their shenanigans. And yeah, I said shenanigans. He didn't put up with their shenanigans for a second. He knew they were ridiculous. They were just traditions. And I love that Jesus, in all of his grace and mercy, doesn't play nice with a bunch of self-righteous posers. He intentionally gets in their face. He's doing this on purpose, guys. He's the one who's highlighting that they don't know or keep the word of God. He's not out to make friends that way with people who've made enemies of the law of God among his people. He's exposing their sin, not hiding it and playing along with it. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he's the Lord of the Pharisees as well. And that's what they hate. 
They hate that Jesus is their Lord and lives like he's their Lord. They hate that Jesus isn't playing along with all their little religious games and that he won't yield to their self-imposed authority. And in our text, here's what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath days. He's peeling back the curtain for us. And not only is he revealing the heart of the Pharisees, even more he's revealing the heart of God. He reveals why God gives commandments in the first place. He reveals how God enables us to keep commands that don't just sound impossible like the Pharisees. They are impossible like the laws of God. He shows us that his heart is so different than the Pharisees. That's why they don't recognize him when he showed up in the flesh. And all of those dynamics are embedded as the foundation of our text. They form our big idea for this morning. So here's our big idea for this passage of scripture. As the Lord of God's law, Jesus instructs us for our good and empowers us For our obedience. Guys, that's what Mark is showing us in the details of this section. It's not just that Jesus is God. Yes, he's showing us that here. And that's the point of these five stories in this section. And it's not just that the religious people reject and hate Jesus. Yeah, that's the point of these two stories and the point of the five stories that make up this section. He's showing us something deep in the details. And it's the heart of God behind every command that he's ever given. Let me show you what I mean by that. The first thing in our, our, our big idea is this. As the Lord of God's law, Jesus instructs us for our good. He commands us for our good. Look at verses 27 and 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man which is a reference to his deity, is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is what I meant when I I said that Jesus peels back the curtain. He shows us, guys, why God gave the Sabbath in the first place. And the reason why God gave the Sabbath was for the good of man. God wanted his people to rest. And guys, this could be a great sermon for us in this day and age. God wants you to rest. He doesn't want you to work yourself to death. He doesn't want your relationship with him to be one of weariness where you work your fingers to the bone and you wake up dog tired every day. Am I the only one who feels that way every now and then? He wants his people to rest. And even more than being rested and refreshed physically, he wanted to give them a break from their work so they could focus on him. That's why he made the command, make that Sabbath day holy unto the Lord. Make it a day in which you can focus on me and have relationship with me and enjoy me. And so God's command to have a Sabbath rest was intended for the good of his people. Jesus says it was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. As the one who gave the law, the heart of Jesus is always good for his people. His commands are protective, guys, not restrictive. He's not trying to ruin your fun. He's trying to give you eternal joy. He wants your life to be better than you want your life to be. And he knows better than you what will make that happen. And so he gives his commands for the good of his people. And to make sure we get that point, to know that he's not just talking about the Sabbath, 
Jesus actually brings up an even more difficult scenario from the Old Testament. He brings up a story about King David that didn't have anything to do with the Sabbath. Look back at verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Okay, so this is a reference to something that happened Back in 1 Samuel 21, David wasn't king yet. He was actually running from the king at the time, King Saul. And he and his men were kind of on the run so much that they had run out of food. And David decided to go to the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was like a mobile temple. It was a tent that served as the temple of God until the permanent temple could be built after David's life, his son Solomon was able to build that. So he goes to this tabernacle where the worship of God took place. And he, he asks one of the priests there to give him help. Now, the priest only had the bread of the presence that was available to him. Now, the bread of the presence was actually part of the ceremonial law of God. The ceremonial law of God in the Old Testament governed worship. It governed sacrifice. It was the ceremonies that were to be a part of God's people that would set them apart from all the other nations as people who were dedicated to Jehovah God as their Lord. And one of those ceremonial laws was that every week there were 12 freshly baked loaves of bread that would be presented before the Lord and placed in his presence all week long. Bread symbolized fellowship. That's like when we say we're breaking bread together. We're talking about fellowshipping with one another. And so the 12 loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel and the desire that they should have had, the hunger that they should have had to be in fellowship with their God. And the bread of presence would sit there in the presence of God. Some people think that that's how Carabas makes their bread taste so good is that it's a modern day. In the, no, just kidding. Those 12 bread, loaves of bread, though, then were taken out every week to be replaced with new, new loaves. And the ceremonial law said that when the old bread was taken out to be replaced, the only people who were allowed to eat that bread were the priests. But the priest who receives David's request for food breaks the law of God. And he gives the bread to David and his men. And here's the strange thing. God didn't punish David and God didn't punish the priest. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that there's a purpose behind the law of God. There are intentions that God has for all of his commandments. And his heart behind his laws has always been for the good and not the harm of his people. Now, I can't go off on this tangent very long, but I can anticipate that some people might wonder, hey, is Jesus saying then we don't need to follow the commands of God as long as our intentions are good? Well, listen, this is an entire sermon series in itself. Pastor Kerry will be preaching it, I'm sure, in the weeks ahead. This is a a sermon to itself, but here's the deal. The ceremonial law of God was laid aside when Jesus came because the ceremonial law was always supposed to be temporary. 
It was pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus. It governed the law of the temple. But now that Jesus has come, we have become the temple of God through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But in the Old Testament, there's another kind of law. It's called the moral law of God. And the moral law of God was never meant to be temporary. The moral law of God reveals the heart of God for holiness among his people. As a matter of fact, Jesus in his ministry and through his apostles reinforces the moral law of God throughout the New Testament. The only law of the Ten Commandments that isn't reinforced over and over again by the apostles and Jesus is actually the law of Sabbath. We find Jesus releasing us from the law of Sabbath, but he does not release us from the moral law of God. So here's the story. When Jesus is bringing up the story about David, he isn't saying that moral relativism and situational ethic are the norm for the morality of God's people. He's not saying that at all. He's simply illustrating that God's heart behind his commands Even the ceremonial law that was hard to understand was always for the good of his people. All of his commands are for the good of his people. In other words, Jesus instructs us for our good. Let me give you a little illustration. One of the very first rules that we ever had in our home for our kids was the rule that Logan was not allowed to touch this old wooden chest we had in our living room. We instituted that rule as soon as Logan started learning how to crawl. Anytime he would come close to that chest, we would firmly tell him no. And if he reached out to touch it, we would lightly smack him on the hand. That's how we did life in the green home. Now, I am sure that all of you had a similar similar rule about letting your kids touch the furniture. Our dogs are allowed on the furniture. The kids aren't. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Just a joke. Can you guess why we would have that rule? I don't know if you would know or not. Well, it's because that chest was beautiful and expensive, and we didn't want his grubby little paws smudging (laughs) little prints. No, that's not it at all. No. No, here's why we had that rule. We had that rule because our television sat on that chest, and we knew the day would come when crawling would lead to pulling up on the furniture And even though that chest was sturdy and solid and we didn't really think that there was much danger to it, we didn't want to take any chances with our kids. And so we would rather him not pull up on that chest than to take any risk of being harmed. We wanted to protect him. That rule was for his good. Now listen, guys, Jesus is infinitely more devoted to the good of his children than we are to the good of ours. So every command that Jesus gives, every instruction that he makes is for our good. And even though we're no longer living under the Old Testament law, you need to know this. The New Testament is still filled with commands from Jesus to us as his people. Some scholars estimate there are over 1,000 commands in the New Testament for us as followers of Christ. I'll give you a few examples throughout the New Testament with the apostles and prophets bearing witness. Jesus tells us... Children, obey your parents. Feels like a pretty good place to start on Mother's Day, right? (laughs) Hey, kids, obey your parents, husbands. Love your wives like Christ has loved the church. Live sacrificially for her good. Wives, respect and submit to your husbands. Employees, honor your employers. Jesus tells us to not be lazy, 
but to work hard doing honest labor with our own hands. Jesus tells us to live in sexual purity, to live with personal integrity, to be extreme in our generosity, to be patient in tribulation, and to be thankful in all things. He tells us to not forsake assembling together with other believers. On and on we could go. Christ commands us how to live, and here's what we need to come to believe All of Christ's commands come from the same heart as the giver of God's law. He wants what is good for you. Now just think about your relationship with the commands of Christ. I realized as I was going through this, there are a lot of different responses that we have in our hearts toward the commands of Jesus. There are some people who live in denial. You know, for one reason or another, I don't know what this is, but it seems to be a growing trend in modern Christianity. It seems as though there are many so-called Christians who live as though Jesus does not give us any commands on how to live or gives us the ability to approach his commands as an a la carte buffet that we get to pick and choose what we want to believe and obey. As though being freed from the Old Testament law means now we can live in lawlessness. And there's this denial that comes over some of our hearts. Jesus doesn't tell us how to live or what to do, but you need to know this, guys. The Bible's very clear. The grace of God is never an excuse to sin. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You know it's from Titus, so it's got to be good. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Look at this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Guys, the grace of God to us in Jesus is not a life that frees us to lawlessness. It's a life that enables us for holiness. So we don't live in denial as though Jesus, as our Lord, does not command us on how to live. There are others, though, who live not in denial but in despair. You've tried it. You tried it a thousand times. You grew up living in a Christianity that gave you a good long list of do's and don'ts. As a matter of fact, you grew up in a Christianity where that's all there was, was a good long list of do's and don'ts. And you have experienced the commands of Scripture in a way that has absolutely convinced you of one really important truth. You can't do it. And the despair in your heart causes you to live with perpetual guilt and shame every time you hear the word obedience or holiness or Christ-likeness. So some live in denial, some live in despair, but for those who really know the gospel, those who really know Jesus, our relationship with commands of Jesus isn't to be denial or despair, it's supposed to be delight. Listen to 1 John 5 verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, he's referring to those who were heavy laden largely because of the rules and regulations that had been placed on them by the religious leaders. And he says, I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke. It's easy and light. His commands are not burdensome. Guys, when you understand that Jesus is working by his power to bring you good, 
To bring you joy that will last forever and not just the momentary pleasures that sin might bring. To make your life full of pleasure at the right hand of God and and give you a meaning and purpose that only he can provide. Guys, when you realize he is working actively for those things, what he tells you to do when you believe that's his heart is not a burden. It's a delight causes our hearts to realize that in God's word, Jesus has given us a not-so-secret code for how life works best. So let me just ask you this before we move on. What would change in your life today if you saw the commands of Jesus as something for your good? Not a thing to restrict or repress you, but a thing to give you joy and satisfaction and meaning in Christ. Is there any place in your life where you are not living in complete obedience to Jesus? What would it look like for you this morning to say, Jesus, you are my Lord. You're not just Lord of the Sabbath. You're Lord of all, including me. And for some of us, even as I was considering this, and this is another tangent I can't quite go down. Some of us are rule makers. Some of us want to be rule makers. Some of us are backseat drivers to everything in life. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about those of you who are parents, those of you who are bosses, those of you who are teachers. My question for you is, does your heart as a rule maker reflect the heart of Jesus as the Lord of rules? Do your rules have the good of people at at their heart as their objective? Parents, can I just encourage you this? Because I said so isn't the best reason you can give for having the rules you give your children. What would it look like if your heart said, I want your good. And so the rules we have in our home, they're not about public appearance. And they're not about keeping up with the Joneses. And I really don't even know what that means anymore. They're about what's best for you. And what's best for you is what Jesus says, not just what mom and dad say. Jesus instructs us for our good. Because there's something else we need to see. And we, I'll just show you this really quickly. Um, that, that should cause us to understand the commands of God are not burdensome, not just because they're, they're for our good. Let, let, me, let me just put it this way. Number two, Jesus empowers us for our obedience. He doesn't just instruct us for our good. Jesus empowers us for our obedience. I want to I show you something really cool here. Verse one of chapter three. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Now, we don't know exactly what this condition was. We just know his hand doesn't work at all. That's why it's called a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. They're a bunch of snakes in the grass, aren't they? Let's see if he heals this guy so we can pounce on him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. He's not playing nice with them. He's getting in their face in a sense with his lordship over them. And he's grieved at their hardness of heart. And he says to to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Guys, just think about what's going on here. Jesus has just revealed in the section before this that he is the Lord of God's laws. He's the one who instituted all of God's commands because he is God. And his commands are always for our good. 
Then he comes to the synagogue. After having unpacked that, he encounters a man who has a withered or a dead hand that doesn't work at all. And in verse 4, he emphasizes he's committed to doing what is good for this man because he's committed to do what's good for people. So he's obviously pointing out that the Pharisees don't share his heart. And he's pointing out that they are the enemies of God's law, not the friends of God's people. They did not want him to heal on the Sabbath because their self-righteous hearts cared more about their religious rules than the people that Jesus came to save. And again, that's another message for another time. And Jesus is revealing the wicked heart behind the Pharisees' religion. But what I want you to see as clearly as anything else before we go is this. He's also teaching us another thing related to his commands. You see, Jesus doesn't just heal the man. I want you to notice how he specifically heals the man. Verse 5, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Do you see it? You see what's happening here? Jesus gives him a command. You notice that? He's just gone on this whole section. I am the giver of the commands and I give commands for the good of people. And he comes to this man with a withered hand and the way he chooses to heal him is he gives the man another command. Jesus commands him to do something. But do you notice something that's really, really interesting about the command that Jesus gives him? It's impossible, right? You see that, don't you? Okay, I'm backing up from the very beginning. If you don't see that, we've got to do this all over again. He, he gives him a command. The man has a withered hand. That word withered is as though it is dead. This man's hand is a dead hand. It does not, 